You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermasters Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and Birdsong. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Tim and Brendan. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, the French buccaneers, led by Pierre Le Picard and Mathurin de Marais, had just dealt a staggering defeat to the Spanish soldiers that had been harrying them. We're picking up right where we left off, in the immediate aftermath of the battle. This episode could have been titled Unexpected Morning Music Part 2. However, That music in question was very much expected today, and I found another title I wanted to use. This is episode 143, Men or Devils. Once the Spanish finally fled the field of battle, after the pirates had defeated them, they left their dead and wounded behind, those too wounded to walk, and the buccaneers combed through the battlefield for... Well, anything of interest, you know, good boots or shot and powder, maybe coats, muskets maybe, but the Spanish guns weren't that good. In combing the field, though, they happened across the Spanish general. Revno de Luzon calls him an old Walloon, that is, a one-time soldier in the Wallonia region of Belgium, something we might know better as the Spanish Netherlands. It's a predominantly French-speaking region today, and in fact at the time had a lot of French speakers. However, it was occupied by Spain. That occupation was a bone of contention between Spain and France for many, many years. It was something of an open wound between the two nations that made any sort of lasting peace impossible. It reminds me of Alsace and Lorraine between France and Germany. To the French, any Frenchman really, finding an old Walloon commander would not be unlike a, well, a Frenchman finding an old German commander of Alsace and Lorraine in World War I, or maybe a Chinese soldier discovering that the Japanese general that they had just captured had taken part in the rape of Nanking. 
There are a thousand stories like that all throughout history, all around the world, of ancient enmity that manifests itself in the people of their time. It might be a bit much to say that the pirates celebrated the death of this old Walloon, but I imagine that his corpse was the target of many a French curse and many a Frenchman's spit. Lusan tells us, quote, Their general, an old Walloon officer, had given them the plan of this retrenchment that would infallibly have prevailed against us had we attacked them by the way they expected. Another old captain advised him to secure their rear, but the general saw so little likelihood of danger on that side that he answered we, the pirates, must be either men or devils. If we were men, he defied us to get over any way. If we were devils, he must be taken. End quote. However, that other old captain eventually prevailed with their general and convinced him to post those two sentries that the pirates stumbled upon, those who alerted the Spanish to the pirate movements above them. Now, that did not do much for the Spanish in the end, but it was the right move. Throughout this entire post-battle sequence, Lusan is, if any of it can actually be believed, Lusan is castigating the general for his failure, and considering the death toll on the side of the Spanish, the general does seem to deserve it. And there's, you know, kind of a lot of nationalistic chest-thumping going on, oh, the French are so much braver than the Spanish, blah, 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 but I think there's a real lesson to take from this story. The pirates, and really pirates in general, teach us a lesson. It's a lesson that you can really see best in hindsight, and honestly, it's a lesson that most people in the world have learned by this point. But it's something that the powers of Europe wouldn't learn until maybe the French Revolution or Napoleon, or in some cases even World War I. The pirates, when we take away the crime, which, you know, maybe we should not do since it's the definition of piracy, but when we take away the crime and the rum and the eye patches and the parrots and the politics and religion, all we're really left with is the job of piracy. A pirate crew was essentially an independent mercenary marine corps. Now, they were different from other mercenary navies, legitimate legal mercenary navies, in that they had a decentralized structure. There was an admiral from time to time, but it was really on a ship-by-ship -ship basis. But the thing that separates pirates from royal or national navies and armies is something that we recognize as deeply important, but was not necessarily recognized at the time. It's the question of merit. Pirates utilized their merit-based system in their command structure. If a captain was bad at his job, the pirates under him, through thoroughly democratic means, had the ability to replace that captain, or that quartermaster, or whatever officer was failing to do their duty. They could be voted out of power and replaced with someone who would hopefully do a better job. And that didn't always work out, just like modern Republican democracies don't always work out, sometimes you elect an Adolf Hitler, but they work out more often than not. When men of the Royal Navy, or 
soldiers in a continental army or even a Spanish colonial militia in the New World, when they were led by incompetent commanders, commanders who usually had a name that carried some influence, when those soldiers or sailors thought about replacing their commander or, God forbid, discussed replacing their commander, they were beaten or even executed, usually on the direct orders of that same incompetent commander. There was no merit-based system in any of those organizations. It was all about the name. It was all about the money and the power that you held, not how good you were at the job. And this is a military question, although there are obvious parallels to politics. But in military organizations, that system often led to disasters very much like the one that the Spanish had just endured here. There was a tiny force, a fraction of the size of the Spanish force in the region that had severe tactical disadvantages, and they were able to outsmart and overwhelm the clearly superior force because they had better commanders. These were lions led by donkeys versus lions led by better lions. Now, all of this clearly is fed by my own modern biases, I won't deny that, but it is corroborated in Lusan's account. In fact, he kind of pushes that idea. More than anything, he does so via a letter that he claims was found on the person of that Walloon commander. A letter to the commander from the general of this region, which Lusan reprints in full. I'm not going to bother you by reading the whole thing, but I am going to select the very best bits that, you know, support my point of view. That letter, according to Lusan, reads, quote, A letter written by the general of the province of Costa Rica to the commander in the retrenchments dated January 6, 1688. Sir, I thought I had made a good choice when I committed to you the conduct of an affair which ought to re-establish our reputation, if you have the better of the enemy. I was preparing to send you eight thousand men, if you had not sent me word that fifteen hundred was enough. I doubt not a person that hath served so long as you have done will take care of your men. According to the relation you have given of your retrenchments, it's impossible but those people, with the help of God, must be destroyed. End quote. I want to pause and point out that the general could have had eight thousand soldiers to attack the pirates. And yeah, that probably does sound like overkill for 300 scurvy French pirates, but clearly they needed it. And why would he turn down that clear advantage? Pride is the only answer that comes to mind. But then the governor goes on to advise some troop movements to the general, and the commander followed some of them, but not all of them. However, the letter continues, quote, Take good measures, for those devils have a cunning and subtlety that is not in use amongst us. When you find them within the shot of your harquebuses, and when you find them weakened, raise a shout to frighten them and fall in with your swords, while Don Rodrigo attacks them in the rear. End quote. Which, you might note, is not what the Spanish commander did, but it is what the pirates did in their same situation. Don Rodrigo, by the way, was the commander of those 300 soldiers to the pirates' rear, closer to Segovia, their constant shadow, as Luzon calls them, and we should not forget about them. 
But the governor goes on to conclude his letter with a bunch of talk about God and his divine preference of the Spanish over what he calls these new sort of Turks. And the governor even goes on to make promises of heavenly rewards and the more earthly rewards of gold and silver that would be claimed from the corpses of the pirates. And Lusan is really kind of smirking about that. He retorts that bit of Spanish religiosity by describing the French pirates singing, quote, Te Deum upon the field of battle by way of thanks unto God for this victory, end quote which is a very fancy, very Catholic, very old-world way of saying, na 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 na. However, the pirates did not have a long time to celebrate their victory. That shadow company, their constant shadow, was still in the rear, and before long, the pirates, puttering around the field of battle, heard musket fire coming from around the mountain. Now, remember how the battle was organized here. The pirates held the high ground, and the Spanish were stuck below them at one of their own barricades. There was another company of pirates that held the valley below the Spanish, and then there was the pirate baggage train, guarded by a force of mostly freed slaves that was around a bend in the river. Behind them, there were those 300 Spaniards. Neither the pirate's baggage train nor those 300 Spanish troops could see or knew what was happening in the battle. Now, had those 300 soldiers known what was happening up the mountain, they may have pulled back to a better, more defensible position. But that's not what happened. Instead, when the constant shadow heard the guns of the battle dying down, they presumed that the battle had been won by their Spanish brethren, and they advanced on the pirate's baggage train. They didn't want all of their Clearly, victorious compatriots to hog all the glory, after all. That's when the pirates up the mountain, who had just fought a battle, heard the guns. Now that middle group of pirates, those stuck below the Spanish, they put sixty men on Spanish horses, and those sixty rushed off to the fighting in the rear. But the gunfire only lasted for a few minutes. The pirates on horseback assumed that the Spanish had taken that battlefield and thought that they would have to fight another battle before the day was out. But let's assume that you had been bought and sold as property. Here, in this moment in Central America, you have a chance at real freedom and there were 300 Spaniards trying to take that away from you. What would you do to escape that fate? What wouldn't you do to escape that fate? To defend yourself and the other 80 freed men and women and children who were there beside you, all in the same dire situation. They did what I assume anyone would do. They fought really, really hard. Now, Lusan wasn't there, but he did hear about what transpired when the guns ceased fire. He says, quote, Considering their number, the Spanish could have carried in a moment. They had so little courage that they contented themselves to send an officer to our men that guarded the baggage to parley with them. And thus the cowardice of the enemy was fully confirmed. End quote. The Spanish had advanced on the baggage train, but they were fought back, and they retreated to an eminence where they entrenched themselves, a highly defensible position 
It was then, before the sixty cavalrymen arrived, that they sent down an emissary to discuss terms. And that emissary believed that he was doing so from a position of strength. They might have pulled back from the fight, but they had the rear well defended here. They had a very defensible position. There was no escape through them. And really, he was right. There wasn't an escape that way. But that emissary was operating under the assumption that there were still soldiers who were pinning the pirates in on the other side, those soldiers that the pirates had just routed. He gave the pirates terms. He suggested that they hand over their rightful Spanish property. He wanted the treasure and the slaves, but in return, he offered safe passage. The emissary told the pirates, quote, I come hither from my general. You say that you are men of courage, yet you are not to doubt the great numbers of men we have will overpower you. If you will give yourselves up prisoners of war into the power of our general, who was dead, remember, who is a man of honor, we will be friends and let you pass to your own country. End quote. This message made everyone in the pirate's rear guard very nervous. Remember that they didn't know what had happened in the battle any more than this Spanish emissary did. Some of them began to think that it might be in their best interest to surrender. If the Spanish were really men of their word, that might get them home alive. Obviously, though, the freed slaves did not share that opinion. They were not about to go back in chains, and they still had all of those weapons that had been given to them by the pirates. There was a moment there where it almost fell into fighting between the pirates and their allies. There were a lot of glances passed between men. There was a lot of gripping the hilts and the pistols tightly. And considering the numbers at play in this rearguard, the slaves very much could have killed the few pirates. They could have killed them to a man. And then the slaves, once again slaves, could have been swept up by the Spanish with ease. At this moment, disaster was inches away. Right then, when everything rested on a knife's edge, a horse's whinny was heard in the distance. That was followed by the sound of galloping hooves. If the former slaves and the pirates in the rear guard were about to fight one another, they put that aside to defend against whatever was coming up behind them. However, they saw that the reinforcements had arrived on the back of Spanish horses. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. The rear guard's courage was restored, and they told that Spanish emissary, quote, Though you have force enough to destroy our number, we should not fail still to fight. Yea, though there were but one man of us left, he should fight still against you all. When we left the sea, we resolved to pass through your country or die in the attempt, and though there were as many Spaniards of you as there is grass in this savanna, we should not be afraid, but look upon you always, in our opinion, cowards." and we will pass on, and go where we will in spite of your teeth. End quote. That's a bold speech. However, those pirates probably felt confident in making that speech. They probably realized what the Spanish emissary had just realized. Quote, The officer, being dismissed upon our arrival, mounted his horse to return from whence he came, Observing we were booted and mounted upon his companion's horses, he shrunk up his shoulders, by way of amazement, and rode as fast as he could to carry the news to his own party. As soon as he was got to them, we advanced and fell upon them. We received their first firing, to which we made return with our pistols and cutlasses, and that unhappily for them who had not yet got upon their horses, for we cut a great many of them to pieces." We let the rest go, detaining only their horses, when we had broken all their arms. We had no more than one man killed in this engagement, as t'was in the other, and two maimed. End quote. Now I know I've said it before, but I have to say it again. I adore the writing of Ravno de Lusan. I don't care if it's a half-true fable that was unduly influenced by his publishers back in France. That is a hell of a story. And I mean, I shouldn't be surprised at that. This was the reign of Louis XIV, which is considered by some the pinnacle of French literature, and that makes it a contender for the height of European or even world literature, at least before the 20th century. No, I don't know that I would agree with that, but I don't speak French and I'm not a literary scholar. I do love this book, at the very least. Now, they let those Spanish who were still in one piece run away, but they kept their horses, and when he says they broke their arms, he means their guns. They didn't literally break their arms. Another battle had been won with shocking lack of casualties against the Spanish. That's two forces defeated by an inferior number of pirates. However, those of you who are paying close attention might have noticed something. Remember in that letter that the governor sent, he said that the general only required 1,500 men. 
the pirates had defeated a force of maybe as many as 500 earlier in the day, most of whom they let escape. Then they defeated another force of maybe 300 men, most of whom they let escape. That is only, at the very most, 800 men, most of whom escaped. What about the other 700? Well, they were dug in deep, high up on the mountainside. Lusanne tells us that, come nightfall, the pirates saw a massive bonfire far above them. It was the sort of fire that nobody in the valley could miss, not the pirates, who were certainly meant to see it, and not what he calls the fugitives. Those hundreds of soldiers that they had let escape, that they had failed to kill, while they were heading to that bonfire like moths to a flame, they were rejoining the ranks of those seven or eight or more hundred Spanish soldiers. That was a force that was not split up. That was a force that they would be unlikely to defeat. The pirates did not wait for those Spanish forces to gather and fall on them. They began making moves immediately. They did not make camp that night. There was no rest for the wicked. This was their only window that they had, and they had work to do. This is kind of a disturbing bit of information, honestly. It makes sense. It's the sort of thing that we see fairly often in world history. We even see it twice in the Bible. But if you're squeamish or a particularly strong animal lover, you might want to close your ears for a moment. The pirates there in the river valley found themselves in possession of every Spanish horse. Those horses, when the Spanish came down the mountain, would allow them to chase after the pirates at speed. The Spanish were relying on them to catch the pirates. So the pirates hamstrung them. Nine hundred horses all throughout the night for hours had their hamstrings sliced with swords. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that sounds like. I don't know what that smells like. And to be honest, I don't want to know. I'm not going to dwell on that event. But for the pirates to escape, it makes sense. It would slow the Spanish down, while the pirates took around 300 horses at dawn and rode away, at speed. They rode hard for several days, through the river valley at the base of the mountain. On the 15th, they came to a hato that had a few Spanish ranchers staying there. Now, those ranchers were surprised and a bit frightened at the sudden appearance of 300 French buccaneers, but the buccaneers didn't want to attack them. They wanted their help. The ranchers, probably with the threat of death hanging over their heads, aided the pirates in slaughtering and salting 200 of their horses. They were to feed the pirates for the rest of their journey home. 100 of those horses, though, were left with the ranchers as a sort of repayment, something I imagine that those ranchers never mentioned to anybody. The following morning, with no sign of the Spanish on their trail, the pirates found a suitable place to put in on the river. Thus far it hadn't been wide enough or deep enough to carry them, but here, on the 17th of January, they found the place where it really began to flow. Now the pirates didn't have boats, but they did have axes, 
Luson writes, quote, On the seventeenth we came to the river, and entered the woods that grow upon the banks where everyone fell to work in good earnest to cut down trees to build piperies. Some perhaps may think that these were commodious vessels to carry us with ease down the river, but there was nothing less than that in it. End quote. Piperies were nothing more than rafts, just a few logs that were strapped together on which two or maybe three pirates could stand to row down river. You've seen people paddle boarding, maybe. Maybe you've been paddle boarding yourself. Well, this looked a lot like that, only people on paddle boards are usually far more attractive. Paddleboarders also usually aren't carrying rucksacks that have all of their worldly wealth in them. They also aren't carrying black powder muskets, which might save their lives and would be rendered completely useless if they should get too wet. But their entry into this river finally tells us where the pirates were headed, conclusively. Today, that river is called the Rio Coco, but at the time, the Spanish called her the Rio Segovia. She begins before Segovia, but she lets out on the other side of the continent, in the Caribbean, at Cabo Gracias a Dios. However, that river, Rio Coco or Rio Segovia, it has another name. It is called the Wonky River. It's given that name by the people who commanded the southern Nicaraguan bank of the river and controlled most of Nicaragua all the way to the coast, the Mosquito Coast. Next time, well, Revno de Lusan can do a better job telling you about next time than I can. He writes, quote, You may judge by what follows whether the continual apprehensions of danger we were in were well or ill-grounded. End quote. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of you who have signed up to become patrons on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a rating or a review. And everybody who has recommended this show. All of you make this show possible. And while we're on the subject of thanks... We're in the Thanksgiving season here in the U.S. You're probably hearing this shortly after Thanksgiving is over. And while I worry sometimes that the thanks I give at the end of every episode might begin to sound routine, they are genuine. I appreciate every last one of you. You really do make it possible, and I love doing this. I'm thankful for the opportunity to do so, and all of you for giving me that opportunity. Also, on the subject of Thanksgiving. In the very near future, we're going to be moving on to a story that centers, at least in part, around North America. We're going to be discussing events in North America, and I wanted to begin that look on Thanksgiving with the real story of the pilgrims. However, I found that I didn't really enjoy that story. I didn't find it that interesting. There wasn't much I had to add, what I found more interesting was the myth of Thanksgiving and how it was at least built upon in the 1950s mostly to sell turkeys. But that is something that I, and hopefully you, can look forward to. Regardless, I hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. At least everyone who is in the U.S. 
Those of you not in the U.S., I hope you had a happy last Thursday in November. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, I absolutely suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight